Father in heaven, thank you, God, so much for bringing us all together this morning. Already, Lord, for the fellowship that we've enjoyed and offering up our, our voices in song to you and our instruments and, and, Lord, in our giving, Father, in our prayer time. And now, Lord, may we worship you in spirit and in truth through your word, from hearing your word. And I pray being convicted by your word, having having good understanding of what your word would teach us, tell us this morning. And Lord, that we may then, with the help of your spirit living inside of us, put that word into practice in our lives, whether that is as individuals or as families, and then, yes, of course, as a church family. We pray that Christ, your Son, will be exalted, Lord, this morning. Continue to be exalted. We pray for our times and our fellowship groups, and may all of these things bring you um, much praise and glory, and may they be pleasing to you, God. We pray all of this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> when I was when I was young, and I say young, probably like in the grade school range, um, I was one of those kids that I, I knew how to please my parents. You know, I, I wasn't the difficult child or anything like that. And I caught on real quick that as far as I pleased my parents, guess what? Oh, that's good for me. That, that actually pays off some, you know, and, and I, my mom used to, oh, she'd, you know, buy me special treats at the mall, or um, I remember her taking me to uh, see movies, uh, her and I, and, and maybe a trip to the circus, or as I got a little bit older, then um, she and my dad would take me to uh, see a Broadway show over in San Francisco, and, and um, so the two kind of just seemed to go hand in hand, and I enjoyed to to um to please my parents it wasn't anything that uh i didn't uh, you know feel like i was forced to do or had to do and and i'm sure at the time there were probably uh, plenty of good reasons that maybe i wasn't even aware of that that were good to please my parents and then of course i get to that phase where i'm now in high school and and the idea of pleasing my parents just kind of goes out the window a bit. And I decide that, no, I, I think my way is the better way. And that would maybe sometimes not be what pleased them. But I'm going to hold to that and, and I'm going to kind of do what's wise and right in my own eyes. And uh, guess what? There wasn't as much blessing. It just didn't seem to be readily apparent. Well, then, of course, uh, some years go by and things kind of come full circle for me in that somewhere as an adult, I, I had a newfound respect for my parents, um, maybe for what they went through in raising me. I, uh, I decided that I wanted to, again, please my folks, even as an adult. And, and again, yes, because at that point in my life, there's a little bit of age behind, uh, behind me, a little bit more maturity, and I started to notice and be reminded of all the things that my parents did for me, and, and that, was, that was huge, and, and whether I perceived those things to be good or bad at the time, all of those things were done out of love for me. That, that was, became readily apparent 
in my life. And, and therefore, now you're kind of at this new phase in life where, where I do want to please my parents. I want to be pleasing to them because they, they deserve that. Well, this morning we're going to see, we're going to see what it is for a church. And as I've been saying, also for us as individuals, because it all starts individually in our own hearts, right? Before we can come together as a, as a church, as a collective body to, to know and understand what it is that pleases God. What should we be doing that will bring pleasure to God? And also consequently, one of our points will be, uh, what we might do that would displease God. So with this, uh, please go ahead and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And so far uh, in this book, uh, and specifically chapter 2, we've had two messages on fulfilling the Great Commission. Fulfilling the Great Commission that centered on what sharing the gospel, one, requires of you and I, that it requires boldness and pleasing God, not men, uh, never without, uh, with, never, excuse me, never with error or impurity, deceit or flattering speech or greed or glory from men or heavy-handed authority. Those are ways that we do not want to share the gospel, followed then by how the gospel should be shared, and that would be with true care and concern, a willingness to back up words with action, no extra burdens or strings attached, and with excellent behavior and an intended purpose. That's what we've seen so far. Last week, then, we camped out on just verse 13, and we just kind of blew out the Word of God. And we talked specifically about the Word of God and the fact that the Word of God is indeed inspired, It is inspired by God. It is also the inerrant, without error, word of God. It is the infallible and therefore unfailing word of God. It cannot fail. It is also the authoritative word of God. And it is the all-sufficient word of God. Good for every aspect of life and godliness or faith and practice. So this week we press on through the end of the chapter with verses 14 to 20. And as we do, I want you to see how the Thessalonian church here was again commended by Paul, Silas, and Timothy for being a church that pleases God. And in some very specific areas that they would become imitators of other God-pleasing churches, that is, the Thessalonians would become imitators. They also endured sufferings as a church, and they will be a hope, joy, and crown of exaltation in the presence of Jesus at his coming. And, of course, we want to turn uh, the lens back on ourselves And we can kind of ask ourselves some of these same questions for us here at Calvary Bible Church. How are we at being these imitators of these things? And in so doing, how is it that we are pleasing God or not pleasing God? And that is uh, for us to be convicted over this morning as we go through our text. Why don't we go ahead and stand and we will have uh, the reading of God's word. This is from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 14 to 20. Paul writes, For you, brethren became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. They are not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved, with the result that they always fill up the measure of their sins." 
but wrath has come upon them to the utmost. But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short while in person, not in spirit, were all the more eager with great desire to see your face. For we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan hindered us. For who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. This indeed is the word of God. You may be seated. The first thing we see here in our text for us to imitate is a church that pleases God. The church that pleases God. We see this in verse 14. Again, he says, for you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, for you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews. Now, this the statement from Paul connects back to the Thessalonian brethren, meaning fellow believers, and the fact that they did receive the word of God. The gospel and they accepted it of which it now performs its work in them who believe. We saw that back in verse 13. And part of this 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 work that the word of God is now doing in them is that it has caused the Thessalonian church to become imitators, to become imitators of not just Paul and Silas or Timothy, as we saw back in chapter one, verse six, but of other Jesus believing churches that are in Judea. Now remember that Judea is a Roman province in Palestine and it was home to the very first Christian assembly. We call it the church at Jerusalem. Now I say Jesus believing because verse 14 identifies them as the churches of God in Christ Jesus. And normally we might say Bible believing churches, right? That's what we would say today. But again, you have to remember what we've already said that back then they didn't have what? They didn't have this. They didn't have the completed word of God. They didn't have quote unquote Bibles uh, back then. So we have this first Christian assembly the church of Jerusalem, who was primarily uh, composed of Jews who had converted to Christianity. And by the time we get to Acts chapter 8, Paul, who at that time is still known as Saul, was persecuting the church at Jerusalem. And and the fact, uh, in fact, on the day that Stephen was stoned by the Jewish council in Jerusalem, Acts 8 verse 1 reports, quote, Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him, Stephen, to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. We skip down to verse 4. Therefore, those who have been scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. Now, I show you this so that you can see that as the persecution here started taking shape and and began to happen, Christians, including some of the apostles as evangelists and, and also church planners, are being dispersed, right? They're, they're, they're going throughout Judea and the rest of Palestine, which then causes other churches to start popping up and being formed, or church, church plants, if you will. Now, getting back to our text, let's ask, in what way was the Thessalonian church then imitating these other churches that were popping up in Judea? Well, the second half of verse 14 tells us. 
For you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen. He's talking to the Thessalonians, right? Even as they did from the Jews. In other words, those churches that were popping up around Judea and Palestine were, again, primarily Jews who had converted to following Jesus. You might even say that that would be kind of the first Jews for Jesus ministry. We're being actively persecuted by the Jews as well. Their own countrymen. And you think about this for a second. What is, what's remarkable about this is who's included in that? Paul. Paul is including even himself in this. When he was Saul as a primary persecutor of the church. You could say a Jewish Christian persecutor. You might even remember in Acts 9, verses 1 to 2, right before his conversion, Paul's conversion, Luke writes this, Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus. Damascus, really quick, is way at the the north end there, outside of Judea, but still a part of Palestine. So that if he found any belonging to the way, capital W, that's what they called the Christian faith back then, the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. That's some pretty intense stuff there from Paul as Saul. And then even after Paul was converted, though some of the persecution waned a, a bit, it was certainly still present. We have another example in Acts 12, verses 1 to 3. Luke writes, Now about that time, Herod, the king, laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he had proceeded to arrest Peter also. So it's continuing, no doubt about it. And as we've already already looked at Paul's own experience of persecution and suffering that took place in Philippi, right? And then in Thessalonica as well. Remember in Philippi, they were beaten with rods. They were thrown in prison. Then, of course, he gets tossed out of Thessalonica after he preaches the gospel for three Sabbaths and then spent some additional time there. But it it came to where finally it was it was time to go. They were being pushed out, forced out. We read this in Acts 17. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with a number of God-fearing Greeks and a number of leading women. These were the ones that became true believers. But the Jews, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacking the house of Jason. They were seeking to bring them out to the people. Not for any good purposes, mind you. And I think it's interesting, too, just when you consider Saul caused suffering of his own countrymen, kind of the Jews for Jesus, right? While Paul received suffering from his own countrymen, the Jews that hated Jesus. And of course, what Paul is referring to in our text of verse 14 is how the Thessalonians were now enduring this suffering at the hands of their own countrymen, namely other Thessalonians, be they Jew, Greek, Roman, or something else. And all of this to say, a church or individual that endures persecution and suffering for the sake of Jesus their Lord is a church or an individual that absolutely pleases God. We see this in 2 Peter 
chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, so clearly promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome, the last state has become worse for them from the first. You know what? I put in an incorrect passage. Mm-mm-mm. Well, we see, I will need to, I will need to find this. I thought I had it right there. That, of course, uh, here we are, talking about the sufferings of Christ in First Peter. The sufferings of Christ. And that, indeed, um, Christ being our example in First Peter. Ah, uh, that was it. I got, my, I got Second Peter and First Peter uh, twisted there. My bad. In First Peter, chapter 19. Uh, chapter 19. How about chapter 2, verse 19? Oh, it's just going downhill from here, gang. First Peter, chapter 2 and 19. For this finds favor, if for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if, when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if, when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor. With God. There it is. This is pleasing to God. Thank you for bearing with me. On July 1st in 19, excuse me, 1555, John Bradford was burned to death. He was chaplain to King Edward VI of England and was one of the most popular preachers of his day, but he was a martyr to his faith. As he was being driven out to Newgate to be burned, permission was given him to speak. And from the wagon in which he rode to his death, the entire way out from West London to Newgate, he shouted, Christ, Christ, none but Christ. That's what he's shouting on the way to his death. Our second point here is kind of understood more in the negative. And that is that religion that doesn't please God Religion that doesn't please God. So we continue in reference to the Jewish Christians who suffered at the hands of the countrymen. Look at verse 15. Who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. They are not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. So here Paul takes things a, a step further to include some of the specific persecutions and sufferings that the Jews committed. They killed the Lord Jesus. Now, you, you might be thinking, wait a minute, wait, wait, wait. Seriously, it was Pontius Pilate, right? Pontius Pilate and, and the Romans who, who, um, who really were the ones that killed him, well, they were the ones that had that authority to put him to death. But it was the Jews that were crying out, crucify him, crucify him. So they are the ones that are held responsible 
for the death of Jesus. Now regarding the prophets, it was the Old Testament prophets that the author of Hebrews says experienced mockings and scourgings. Yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves, And holes in the ground. That's what was going on with the prophets. And then Paul, of course, mentions how he, Silas, and Timothy were driven out of Philippi. They were driven out of Thessalonica. Now, what does Paul have to say about these perpetrators? They are not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men. Now, that's an interesting statement there, isn't it? Hostile to all men, because it would seem that, well, these people were really only hostile to Jesus, and they were hostile to the prophets, and they were hostile to, to Paul, Silas, and Timothy. What's this deal about all men? Well, the reason these people were hostile to all men is because they have pre- prevented the gospel from being preached and heard. In, 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 in kicking Paul and company out of these places. They're not even, they're not even like the, the seeds that get sown beside the road, right? Which is uh, the gospel um, is preached and it's heard, but then Satan swoops in and yanks the seeds away. The seeds that have already even been sown in the heart. But these are those who by their own wickedness were driving these evangelists away so they couldn't even preach the gospel for then people to hear the gospel and for people to be saved by the gospel. Now, let's just remind ourselves for a moment about the sovereignty of God and how God knows precisely who, when, and how he will save someone. And frankly, he doesn't need any of our help in the process. Here's the thing. God chooses to use us to get the gospel message out to the people that he wants to save and this is an incredible thing that he would choose us, us wretched sinners, to be his gospel bearers. And, and so it's not so much that there will be people in Thessalonica that will never have this opportunity to, to hear the gospel message or to repent and believe. Um, but it's really more of a referendum to, to those who would hinder the gospel from being shared, from preventing an evangelist from doing their work. And as Paul says, these these are those who are not pleasing to God because in this they are actually hostile to others. The two greatest commands, right, we have in Scripture, love God and love others. Well, these folks are showing themselves to be doing neither. They are not loving God, and certainly by preventing the gospel from being hindered, they are not loving others. Let's just explore this just a little bit further. When people are outright hindering the gospel message and they're doing it by way of persecution, persecution of Christians, that is never pleasing to God. I mean, let's just state the obvious, right? Sometimes sometimes we see this too from uh, other world religions. We see radical Islam and beheadings of Christians. We've heard stories even recently of Christians in Afghanistan that are now suddenly suffering a different kind of persecution at the hands of the Taliban. But what about even some other ways that people can hinder the gospel that isn't necessarily um, through kind of an obvious or, or direct persecution kind of way? 
Well, there's other world religions as well that obviously say nothing of salvation through Jesus Christ. You have, again, Islam, but we also have Buddhism. We have Hinduism. We have, I'm sure, a lot of other isms, Judaism, uh, New Age or Scientology, things like these. And what about, what about the uh, claim uh, from those that, that claim to be Christian, but who share a false gospel, but they're trying to kind of package it as the true gospel? For instance, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses come to mind, and, and then you have all your ultra-charismatic you know, TV preacher kind of folks. I've recently mentioned a bunch, uh, people like Joel Osteen or Joyce Myers, Kenneth Copeland, Paula White, Benny Hinn. When we were up in Weaverville, oh man, we had Bethel Church in Reading. And many of you might, uh, some of you might know of Bethel Church and a fellow named Bill Johnson. And Bill Johnson actually started in Weaverville where he founded a church there and then moved down to Reading and continued with this, you know, ultra charismatic third wave, just gobbledygook, nonsense, garbage um, um, doctrine and, and beliefs. For instance, Bill Johnson's version of the gospel has Jesus as being born again. He teaches that Jesus was born again. He believes that our words have supernatural power akin to God when God spoke the world into existence. He believes and teaches that prophecy and direct revelation outside of Scripture still continue today. He denies that God is in control over all things in the world. He teaches that all Christians have the ability to prophesy. He believes that it is always God's will to heal someone, and it's only our shortcomings and our lack of faith that would prevent this. He uses a Bible translation called the Passion Translation. I was sharing this uh, with, um, with some of our elders uh, the other day. In, in the Bible, the, the Passion Translation includes 50% more text. <laughs> I mean, can you imagine? Take this, cut it in half, and add on to it, right? That, that'd be some serious Bible thumping there, right? Yeah. Gobbledygook. Are these people also hindering the gospel from going forth? Absolutely. Are they hindering people from being saved? Most definitely. Are these people also the kind that are not pleasing to God? Of course they are. And I would say this, that they are in some ways maybe even worse than some of the world religions because people under these false teachers think that they are a part of Christendom because it's being built that way, it's being packaged that way. Again, Mormonism or Jehovah's Witnesses, Osteen, Myers, Bill Johnson, that it is some kind of brand or form of Christianity when it's really not. I think people like this would do well, well, if God were willing to open their eyes, to read Galatians 1, 6 to 10. Feel free to turn there. Galatians 1, 6 to 10. We've got a pretty pointed, pretty uh, intense piece of scripture here, if I got it right. <laughs> That's the thing about Bible program stuff. It's got this great feature of, you know, you can, you can put in the verse and then, and then you hit a button and it copies it over. But obviously, like I said, I had First Peter mixed up from second. Galatians 1, 6 to 10, Paul writes this, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. 
which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. That means damned. Damned for all eternity in hell. Verse 9, as we have said before, so I again say now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. For I am now, for am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Pretty, again, pointed words by the apostle. Now, for this hindering of the gospel, Paul makes it clear that there will be, and this is our third point, there will be consequences for those that don't please God in this realm. Consequences for those that don't please God. We see this continuing on back in Thessalonians uh, in the uh, latter half of verse 16, or the middle, with the result. That they always fill up the measure of their sins. Friends, this literally reads, they always heap up their sins to the limit. So Paul is again referring to the Jews who killed the prophets when the Lord, and then the Lord Jesus, and those who have hindered the gospel at Thessalonica, saying that basically their sins are filling up the cup. And when that cup is full, look out. Look out. The implication is that God will only allow so much sin and wickedness for an individual or a group or a nation before God says, enough is enough. Done. John Calvin writes, quote, this is why the punishment of the ungodly is often postponed. It is because their acts of ungodliness are, so to speak, not yet ripe. In other words, the banana is, uh, is not yellow anymore. It's not even spotted. It's full-on brown, mushy, disgusting, with no good use but to be thrown in the trash. Look at the last part of verse 16. But wrath has come upon them to the utmost. Uh-oh. Cup is full. The cup is full. The, beyond, the banana is beyond ripe. God's judgment is sure. In fact, the language is such that God's wrath is already happening or it is in process. The consequences? Well, okay, you figure the Jews had already suffered through the Babylonian exile. And sure enough, they will see the destruction of Jerusalem in, say, another 20 years, 70 AD. And while there always will be a remnant of Jews who will believe in Christ, there also will be those who will not. And it's those that Paul has in mind here. And we also know that God's wrath will be felt at Jesus' return, according to Revelation 19. But most assuredly, there is the wrath for all who displease God by their rejection of him, whether Jew or Greek, Jew or Gentile. John 3, verse 36 says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Now, one thing 
else here about the wrath of God in verse 16 is that it says it will come upon them to the utmost. Tell us, which means to the end, but here best understood as to the end, continually, perpetually, forever. In other words, this is God's wrath that that will continue through Jesus' return and God's final judgment, which will result in an eternity in hell and the lake of fire. As we read in Hebrews 10.31, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It should be a terrifying thing. And so friends, oh, let us not ever fall into this category of hindering the gospel in any way, shape, or form so that God is displeased and His wrath would abide on us. Paul then switches gears here with verse 17. Look at verse 17 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. But we, brethren having been taken away from you for a short while, in person, not in spirit, we're all the more eager with great desire to see your face. For we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan hindered us. This brings us to our fourth point, fellowship that pleases God. Fellowship that pleases God. This is, this is a fairly straightforward few verses here, a couple of verses with a couple of minor exceptions. But, but let it be clear, Paul loved the Thessalonian church. He loved the Thessalonian people. You might remember back in verse 8, how he told them about his fond affection for them and the fact that they had become very dear to Paul and the rest. And, and so here, Paul is just flat out missing them. He's been away for many months. He's down there in Corinth. He's some 200 miles away, reflecting on how he was taken away from them, forced out of the city. He might have even felt that it was a, a, a premature separation. And it's interesting because this word for taken away there is aporfenizo. Aporfenizo. Ap, meaning uh, from, and orphanizo, orphan. Meaning from an orphan. It's that idea of, of children being taken away from their parents. And you think, ah, yeah, it's kind of intense. And that shows just the, the deep passion and love that Paul had towards this group of people, the Thessalonians. And when he says, having been taken away from you for a short while in person, not in spirit, right? Literally spirit being heart, meaning while he had to leave the city, uh, the church in a physical way, he was still with them in spirit. He is still with them in his thoughts and his prayers, even saying back in chapter 1, verse 2, we give thanks to God always for all of you making mention of you in our prayers. And so Paul was eager. He was eager to, to have that day when he could return and he could see them again and be face to face and he could be with them. And, and, and we hear just this, this desire of his in these words. We hear the emotion in Paul's words of his love and devotion to these people who had become very dear to him and and very dear to him in, frankly, a short amount of time. In fact, he wanted to go back and visit them on at least a couple of occasions, but our text tells us that there was actually satanic opposition. In other words, Paul was prevented from doing so. Prevented, now, not because, you know, he doesn't talk about Satan, you know, uh, Paul's, you know, walking on his way back, and Satan appears, pitchfork in hand, stop, you know, that kind of uh, 
deal in the uh, middle of the road kind of thing. But rather, there were things that were coming up that were preventing Paul from returning to Thessalonica. And he knew at their core that these obstacles were put there by Satan. Remember, Paul knew well how Satan operated. Right? A few years later, a few years after this, he would know that it was a messenger of Satan who became that thorn in his flesh that we read about in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. So you go, well, why would Satan care? I mean, why would he care if Paul went back to Thessalonica? What's the big whoop to move? They're already believers. They're already at church. Let me ask you this. Does Satan like believers? No. He hates them. Let's just, you know, say what it is. He hates you. He hates me. He hates all of us. Does Satan like bodies of believers that have formed into churches? No. Of course not. Does Satan like churches that are united under the headship of Christ? Absolutely not. Does Does he like... Churches that are full of people expressing their love and joy for one another? (laughs) Of course not. Does he like churches where people are with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love? As it says in Ephesians 4 verse 2. No. Does he like churches that are quote, diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Ephesians 4, verse 3. No. Does he like churches that are united in one body and one spirit, called in one hope of their calling in verse 4? No. Does he like churches united in one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all, verses 5 and 6? No. Does he like churches where the body of Christ is being built up until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ, verse 13? Absolutely not. Does he like churches where, because of Christ, the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love, verse 16. An emphatic no. Satan is so against all of this. And therefore, I pray he would be against this church. If he's not against this church, we got a big problem, friends. We got a big problem. And what about our church? What about Calvary Bible Church? Are we having any struggles with these things right now? Friends, I I fear that the enemy Satan is prowling around like a lion here at Calvary Bible seeking those that he can devour. This is not a case of, as we learned last week, let the lion out. This is a case of get the lion back in his cage and send him packing. How do we do this? How do we do this? 
Turn to Ephesians 6. Ephesians 6. Beginning in verse 10. We have to make sure, friends, that we have the armor of God firmly in place. When we as believers are under attack or our church is under attack, we have to make sure that we have put on the full armor of God. Look at verse 10. Paul says, finally, be strong in the Lord in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle, this is important here, friends. This is super, super important. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Meaning our battle isn't against each other as people, right? We understand that there is, it's a spiritual battle going on and it is, of course, being brought to us compliments of Satan and his demons and these spiritual forces of wickedness. Verse 13, therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. And then what are the pieces that we need to make sure that we have in place? He tells us, verse 14, stand firm, therefore, having gird your loins with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace in addition to all taking up the shield of faith which you'll be able to extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit which is the word of god with all prayer and petition pray at all times in the spirit and with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. I, I call that at the end there the, the not-so-secret weapon of the armor of God. To me, the armor of God doesn't end with that, that, uh, that sword there at the end. It ends with prayer. With prayer. Praying for each other. Praying for our church. Okay. We got the armor of God on. Sometimes we need to remind ourselves of this. Do it each and every day. What do we do next? What do we do next? Well, how about we turn our attention to this little thing called the one another's. The one another's. You know, there's some 54 plus one another's mentioned in the Bible. I say plus in case I forgot any. (laughs) I'm pretty sure there's more than 54. We don't have time to go through all of them, but I'm going to give you some highlights here. And here's what I want you to do. As you, as you hear some of these, just, just be assessing in your own heart, maybe for yourself, what are, the, what are the one, two, maybe three that you find yourself even struggling with right now in terms of how we're dealing with one another? Or maybe as a church, all right? Do not deceive one another. I'm not going to read. I have all the verse references here. Just for sake of time, I'm just going to go through them without the verse reference. You want a verse reference, come up to me afterwards. I'd be happy to give it to you. Do not deceive one another. Do not wrong one another. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. Speak truth to one another. Be at peace with one another. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference in honor 
to one another. Be of the same mind toward one another. Pursue things which make for peace and build up one another. Accept one another just as Christ accepted you. Admonish one another. Have the same care for one another. Serve one another through love. Do not challenge one another, meaning in a sinful way. Be forbearing with one another in love. Be kind, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. Speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Be subject to one another in love. Regard one another as more important than yourself. Bear with one another. Abound in love for one another. Comfort one another with the words of Christ's return. I love that. That's, that's part of that, that passage. That's 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 18. Comfort, comfort one another with the words of Christ's return. Encourage one another. Admonish the unruly. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Seek that which is good for one another. Pray, petition, and give thanksgiving for one another. Stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Assemble together with one another. Do not speak against one another. Do not complain against one another. Confess your sins one to another. Serve one another. Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Fellowship with one another. And of course, the coup de grace. The umbrella over all of these, love one another. Love one another. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. That's fine, Pastor. I get it. I do, I do. I, I understand that's what God's Word says. I, I get it. But I'm angry right now. I'm angry and I'm. I'm hurt, and I'm grieving, and I'm confused, and I don't know what to believe or who to believe. I'll be honest, I'm doubtful and distrusting right now. I might even say I've lost confidence. And I'm just sad. I'm just very sad. I know, I know I'm supposed to be doing these things. But I'll be honest with you, I just don't feel like it right now. I just don't feel like it. Here's the thing. We have to be so very careful, loved ones, of of trusting our feelings. Just trusting our feelings or, or following only our feelings. Because frankly, if we only followed our feelings, I guarantee it, we would not be putting the one another's into practice enough. I just don't think we would. Folks, we need to be practicing the one another's always because it is God's desire for us. It is absolutely His will for us. It is even his command for us. 
And we need to do them out of a love and a trust for God and even his word, even and maybe especially when we don't feel like it. This is why we have this verse in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, where we are told to discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. That word discipline is gumnazo. It's where we get our word gymnasium from, right? It's about working out. It's about training ourselves. It's about building ourselves up. And it means to exercise and train yourself for godliness, because you see, God knows, God knows if, if, if left to our own devices and doing things in the Christian life simply based on our feelings, we would never get anything done in a righteous way, in a God-honoring, Christ-honoring way. But we train ourselves, we discipline ourselves to do the things that we don't always feel like doing because in the end we know that it will be immensely beneficial for us and it will absolutely be glorifying to God. I remember, I remember there was a time, I remember a specific moment up in uh, Weaverville and uh, we had men's Bible study going on and, and, um, and I'm sitting at home and it was just one of those nights I did not want to go. I just didn't want to go. I was comfy. I didn't want to go get in the car and go out in the cold and and go to the study. I just wanted to hang out, feed my flesh, sit in front of the TV or whatever, or hang out with the family or this, that, whatnot. I just didn't want to go. But because of a certain discipline that God had, had given me, I knew I had to go. I knew I had to go. So I forced myself, and I get in the car, and I go, and you know what? We have the Bible study, and guess what? Afterward, I walked out to my car, and I'm thinking to myself, See, I knew I shouldn't have gone because, man, I feel terrible. I knew I should. Right? No. Just the opposite. Just the opposite. I was praising God. (laughs) Maybe in a way that I wouldn't have been praising God that night. I was praising God, thanking him. Lord, thank you so much for just making me go. For letting me have that little bit of self-control or discipline or whatever, which I don't always have, mind you. Thank you, God. Thank you. And, and, it, and it, you know, I felt more blessed than I think I would have if I had just gone in a normal kind of way, you know. And, and, and God often does that, doesn't he? Even when we don't feel like doing something, we don't feel like acting a certain way, we do it because we know it's the right thing to do and God calls us to do it. Uh, I, I challenge anyone to come back and tell me that you've had one of those experiences and you felt worse than you did before. No. No, I think just about always we walk out of that going, oh, Lord, that was good. I needed to have done that. Thank you. Thank you for letting me say those kind words to that person, even though I didn't feel like doing it. All right. So now you have the full armor of God on. We considered the one another's. We know that we need to discipline ourselves in this area of things like the one another's. What next? Uh, Well, here's one thing. There's a bunch of things we could go to in Scripture, but here's one that just kind of jumps out on me. How about that we focus on the fruit of the Spirit in our lives right now? How about we focus on the fruit of the Spirit? You know those verses in Galatians 5, verses 22 to 23. Please, say them with me. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, 
goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. Oh, here's the one that hurts, gang. Self-control, right? Against such things, there is no law. When we're practicing those things, no, no law is needed. No law is needed. Now, my hope here is that uh, we don't have enough time this morning, but I, I want to, I'm trying to work something out here where I can do maybe some, some vlogs. I've learned that word. It's video uh, blog, right? Vlog. Oh, yeah, I know I'm a little behind the times, okay. But uh, where I could, I, could, I could share some things with you, the congregation, and, and, and just try to help encourage us all through some difficult times right now through some difficult times and maybe we'll talk a little bit more in depthly about some of the one another's or the fruit of the spirit and what that means to to have that alive and well and and the fruit shining on our branches uh right now during such a time as this and uh, so hopefully look forward to that lastly as we close out this morning we have number five the result of pleasing god the result of pleasing god look at verse 19 Verse 19, for who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. And so Paul is now looking forward to the time when when Jesus Christ returns parousia. He returns at his coming. Parousia, believers are joined with Christ. We are joined with each other, joined with one another. Paul is anticipating this time by asking this question of who is it that currently brings he and Silas and Timothy much hope, joy, and a crown of exaltation. Hope there in the sense of future reward, blessing, as promised by God, joy in the sense of heavenly bliss and satisfaction, looking forward to an eternal life with Christ Jesus and all of those whom Jesus has saved, and a crown of exaltation. The crown is a is a wreath that would have been put on the the, the military victor's head coming back from battle, or or an Olympian, uh, you know, running a race. The victor gets the the wreath, and exaltation just meaning a crown of rejoicing because it's an expression of exuberance. In this sense, you might, you might expect Paul's answer to be Jesus. Jesus is our hope and joy and crown of exaltation. Well, that would, certainly wouldn't be wrong. He is certainly our hope and joy and a reason for exalting. But in this case, no, he says it's actually you, Thessalonians. It's you. At the time when Christ returns and we're all together, that hope and joy and crown of exaltation will be realized. In other words, Paul has no greater joy. He sees no greater joy than to be with Christ, but then to be with all of those that the gospel has been preached to and for all those who have been saved by it, including the Thessalonians. He can't wait. He can't wait to be in the presence of Christ and one another Those who have believed and received the word of God and who he and the others have ministered to, especially the Thessalonian people. Oh, friends, I mean, just let, let, you know, start wrapping your mind around that one. What an amazing time it will be, right? I mean, can you, can you imagine too being, being a church that Paul would say this of? That even us as Calvary Bible Church, that Paul would look at us as a church and say, you, 
CBCers are, are my hope and my joy and crown of exaltation. Whoa. Whoa. Can you imagine seeing people in heaven who you ministered the gospel to? And, and who God saved? What about all the people that maybe you ministered the gospel to, but you never knew if they ever got saved? Or you never knew what kind of a little seed you planted in somebody's life until you're up there in heaven and they come up to you and they go, man, you remember back in, uh, you know, uh, 2002 and I met you at the mall and blah, blah, blah. And we only interacted for about, you know, a few minutes there and we never saw each other again. Guess what? <laughs> Amen, indeed. Won't that be an amazing, awesome time? For Paul, the Thessalonians, their work of faith and their labor of love and steadfastness of hope that he helped to cultivate in them, that he had the blessing of being a part of their lives, would then result in reward. Yes, this this hope, joy, crown of exaltation. But then he says right at the end of verse 20, for you, Thessalonians, are our glory and joy. For you, Calvary Bible Church, are our glory and joy. What an amazing thing to have be said of any of us or of our church. So this morning you've seen the church that pleases God. We have exposed religion that doesn't please God. And that's what we should do with that. Expose it for what it is. We've understood the consequences for not pleasing God. And the fellowship that pleases God. May we excel still more in that department. And the result of pleasing God. Let's pray. Father God, this is all dependent, of course, on the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would do anything that would be pleasing to you. And so I pray, Lord, that if there is anyone out here this morning that is yet to put their trust in Jesus as their Savior, as their Lord, that, Father, they would recognize even right now that they are a sinner that they would be convicted of their sin, that the blinders would be removed, Father, and they would see their sin for what it is, an affront against you, an affront against your Son. But here's the thing, that Jesus, your Son, died for their sin, that he took their consequences upon himself. What should be due us, he paid in full on the cross. And that not only he died and his blood was shed for the forgiveness of sins, but that he was put into the grave and three days later rose victoriously from the dead, conquering sin, conquering death, conquering Satan, conquering hell. And Father, that if we, Lord, somebody here this morning would put their faith and trust, would confess their sins to you and say, I believe, I believe in Jesus Christ as my Savior, as my Lord, that they would be saved. Right here, right now. I'm not going to ask them to raise their hand or stand up or even come forward. But Lord, that they would repent and believe. And we thank you for this in advance. And we pray this all in your son, Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lachman Foundation.